Welcome to Growing Your Financial Advisor Practice Podcast by Snap Projections, episode 49. I'm your host, Pavel Bramensky, and my goal is to interview experts to provide you with insights, strategies, and actionable tactics that you can start applying to grow your financial advisor practice today. For more information and additional content, head over to snapprojections.com podcast. Now, let me introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Terry Ritchie. Terry is a partner and director of cross-border wealth services for Cardinal Point with offices in, in Toronto, Calgary, Arvine, Phoenix, and Boca Raton. Terry is registered financial planner in Canada and is enrolled to practice before the U.S. Internal Revenue Service, IRS, as an enrolled agent. He's also a trust and estate practitioner affiliated with the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners. In 1985, Terry graduated from Arizona State University with a Bachelor of Science degree in finance. Terry has been practicing in the area of financial investment tax and estate planning for over 30 years. Not only does he practice in both Canada and the US, he lives in both countries as well. He's uniquely qualified to deal with financial matters of Canadians and Americans in either country. Terry is active as an author, speaker, and educator on international financial tax and estate planning matters. He has been interviewed and featured in the Globe and Mail, the National Post, the Advisor's Edge, Investment Executive, CBC Radio, CTV, and the Business News Network. His writings have appeared in national magazines, professional journals, websites, and major newspapers in both Canada and U.S. Terry, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Pavel. Terry, I'm super excited to have you on. So we will dive into some really interesting topics. Let's get this started. So tell me a little bit about your firm. So what do you do and who do you serve? So Cardinal Point is is a unique firm. It's a, it's a firm that has a, a very defined niche. It's a firm that works primarily with individuals that have Canada or U.S. financial matters. So we provide a total solution to folks that uh, either straddle the border or or are Americans in Canada or folks are wanting to move from Canada to the U.S. We certainly have snowbird clients. We have clients that live in one country and have beneficiaries in another country. And uh, we provide a total financial planning uh, role on behalf of clients that have these Canada-U.S. issues. As, as we're chatting, basically, uh, earlier, you mentioned that you're the, lar- I think, largest independent cross-border planning firm, right? Yeah, we've had, yeah, we are. So we, we, we there's a few uh, small competitors. We don't bump into them very often. And, you know, I, I would I would not say that, that the larger firms, the banks and some of the larger investment firms are, are firms that we bump into very often or what we would see as com- competitors. Because we, we just don't find that there are firms that offer that total solution in terms of the financial planning experience. So they might have a, a somebody that, that can focus on the tax side of things, uh, and then maybe somebody that can focus on just investments, but not the, the total financial planning uh, comprehensive role that we we play for clients. So can you tell me a little bit more about the firm, just in terms of you know how many staff do you have, just roughly maybe clients, just what kind of you know what is the average client for you, and you know how how are you licensed? So so we have the right context for listeners. Sure. So. Again, as you mentioned, we're, we're fortunate that we have uh, you know, offices in both Canada and the U.S. I've got uh, five partners. There's there's 17 of us. We've seen significant growth. When I joined my my colleagues, my partners uh, over six years ago, there were five of us, and so there's you know now 17 of us, and and wow. it's been exciting to 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 to, to see the, the growth that we've had. We've just got some new staff in Toronto. We've got a a, a new colleague that uh, that joined us in in Phoenix. So we're we're certainly building out that that market, um, and that's where I spend some time and live as well. So we are in, in Canada. We are a registered portfolio manager. We're governed by the the OSC, and on the U.S. side, we are registered with the SEC as a as a registered investment advisor. And in terms of assets under management, we presently have about six hundred fifty million dollars in, in assets that we manage. 
And I would say that a little bit, uh, a little over half of that would be from the REA or the Registered Investor Advisory side in the U.S. And the other half would, would be in Canada. In terms of growth within within the practice, um, we've seen we've seen asset growth uh, be about 130 million dollars year over year. So we've had significant growth on that side. So from a percentage perspective, it's about we've seen about 27 percent growth in terms of AUM over the last number of years. And then in, in terms of clients, you know, we we see a, a typically about a 15 to 20 percent growth year over year in terms of clients. We have about 285 families that we serve, and uh, most of our clients are fairly affluent. So we have uh, specific thresholds that, uh, that that clients have to adhere to from an investment management or, or net worth perspective. And because we provide that total solution, we, we require that uh, that clients uh, utilize us for all aspects of our other relationships. So that would be the, the tax side in, in many cases, as well as the asset management side. So clients, unfortunately, can't say, hey, I want to continue to have my assets over here. And I want you guys to do everything else. It doesn't work on that basis. So we're fortunate to be able to kind of keep everything together in, in one stop, uh, a one stop shop experience. In terms of of, of clients, uh, in terms of location, you know, surprisingly, we don't have anybody in Texas uh, on a consistent basis. But our, our largest sort of market in the U.S. would 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 be in in, in Texas. But um, we certainly do have folks in in uh, Florida and Arizona and certainly California. So um, you know, we have clients in 32 states. And, and eight provinces. We do have some clients that are overseas by virtue of either employment or maybe have beneficiaries or something like that. We have a client that's moving back from Cuba here that we're working with back to Canada. And it's been fun. We've got we've got great clients and uh, we're, we're, we're happy to work all the way. And I guess one of the things that's, that's kind of unique about our, our, our practice is that, you know, even though we have offices scattered around North America, Canada, US, not all the time we're able to physically meet with these folks. And although we are today... Um, able to see each other by virtue of uh, the technology that we're using. We don't do that very often with clients. Most of the, the of the uh, of the relationships that we have with clients, unless they're in our center where we have an office, is going to be over the phone. It's awesome to be able to fly out and and to, to visit with somebody that you've been working with for quite some time. But we have a number of relationships that we'll take on right from the get go. But we'll never ever physically meet the client for for quite some time, and it and it works. I think clients gain that that uh, that trust and confidence over the time. So we spend together and and then uh, we just go from there. So Very cool. So you must be doing something great for sure in terms of a great service. And I find it really interesting that actually you have, you're kind of growing equally fast on both sides of the of the market. Typically you see basically firms that, well, they we maybe do cross-border, but we're more heavily focused towards Canadian market or US market. You're just growing basically in both markets. So so is this, I can't not ask the question, is the, you know, is the growth also attributed basically to just that there is more people essentially that are basically going either from Canada or US uh, and, and, and basically I don't know, maybe baby boomers retiring, basically deciding to actually go south. Like, do you see more and more clients that basically have those kind of more complex issues because they decided that, well, I'm going to live somewhere else? Is what's what's driving the growth here? Yeah, you know, it's a good question, and it's it's not an easy question to answer because I mean, if we go back and, and look at you know here we're 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 coming up with the uh, the U.S. election in 11 months, 12 months, I guess 12 months from now. So we're four years with uh, the present administration, and there was certainly a lot of concern about the impact of lots of things because of what's going on down there, and I guess even to some degree up here. So there was that that, that thought that you know all these people are going to be leaving the U.S. and coming to Canada, and people have strong opinions, good, bad, or otherwise. But surprisingly enough, we we haven't seen a ton a flood of of, of Americans moving up to Canada because of the the, the policies that, that are down that they might not agree with. 
I will say this though, when clients are moving, you know, we sit here, we talk about tax and we focus on tax. And yes, I can quantify the numbers that you might be better off from that tax perspective in that jurisdiction or country versus this one. But really at the end of the day, it's really around lifestyle. You know, where are they going to be happiest? And so we have a number of clients, for example, that have retired in, in the US and have chosen to to move to Canada because of lifestyle reasons. And maybe one of the spouses was a, a dual citizen, the other one is not. And so we have a number of folks in Vancouver, Victoria, I'm actually off to uh, to Vancouver on Monday to, to, to meet with a prospective client that uh, is originally from Canada, but was a physician practicing in the US. And from a lifestyle perspective, they're now looking to move to Victoria. And what's a big deal changer here too, surprisingly enough, are grandkids. When you get grandkids, that changes everything. And I was talking to a, a relatively affluent prospect in Arizona this spring, and he's been down in Arizona for quite some time. And and they were looking at the the pros and cons of of departing Canada and and moving to to Arizona and the establishing residency there. So helping with the immigration, all the other stuff that comes along with that. And they really wanted to do that. And then one of their children decided to have a grandchild back in Canada. And now everything's off because they've just fallen in love with this, this child. And so they're going to stay on the, on the sobered side. So, you know, we, we run the numbers, but, but from a lifestyle perspective, families is a, is a big, big deal. Healthcare is a big deal and certainly families a big deal. So another thing that's, that's kind of interesting too, in terms of, you know, what, what, what's happening with clients is that you know, even though you go ahead and quantify for clients, particularly those that are coming to Canada for the first time after many years, is you show them the tax numbers as part of their, their plan and give them an idea of that. And, you know, they, they look at it, but when they actually end up paying it a year or two later, they're like, what have we done? You know, it's, you know, it's, it's more tangible when you got to pay it as opposed to when you have to see it. So that's kind of interesting as well. Super interesting. So, and this is, I mean, overall, this is, I think this is a really fascinating topic to talk about those cross-border issues with you today, because I think we're, we're definitely seeing more people coming even to us just asking, you know, is, is your software, you know, supporting the cross-border issues and so on? And, you know, at this point we say no, because <laughs> that's, that's, that's a little bit more complex area, but we're not looking into that at this point, but let's continue with your story. So like, you know, you've, uh, you're clearly enjoying and I've known you for four or five years right now, so you're clearly enjoying what you're doing. So, why does this work matter to you? Like, what do you like the most about the work? What's the core, you know, the the core element of enjoyment for you when when it comes to what you do? Well, you know, I think the one thing that's unique about, I guess, our practice and, and many of the colleagues and partners that I work with is that, you know, you can be book smart or you can sort of live it, and and many of us live it in one manner or form. You know, I've got colleagues that live that are dual citizens or married to U.S. citizens or our citizens live in both places. And so not only do these issues apply to us, but they then apply to clients. And so, you know, we can can you know, pass on that information to our clients. One of our colleagues just moved from, he's originally from Canada, was working in Phoenix for a large investment firm down there, large national firm, and then really wanted to, to get into this area and ended up moving to our Toronto office. And so he went through the whole naturalization process, becoming a U.S. citizen and now is a dual citizen and uh, has, has recently moved back to, to the U.S. And so he now has experiences and things that he can share with clients that are that that that, that uh, are confronting these these choices as well. So I mean, uh, for me, you know, I, again, I've been doing it a long time. You know, there's a few detours along the way, but but my niche has always been Canada U.S. based. And very very early on in my practice, I just so I, after I got my certified financial planner when I graduated, I got it right after I graduated university in uh, 1985. I, I got my certified financial planning designation in the U.S. I, it was interesting in that, you know, I found that the clients were not so much focused on 
the kind of rate of return I might be able to generate on a, on a specific investment. Uh, you know, back in those days, ETFs were really where they are now. So, you know, mutual funds and, and things like that. And clients really weren't, in my mind, focused so much on that as they were on tax. So I decided very early on in my career that I would focus or just get a bit more expertise on tax. So, and, and at that time, I was primarily doing U.S. work. I'd moved down to the U.S. at that time. And the tax thing really took off. And it really took off because clients really wanted to have a better grasp of how they could reduce tax. What are, what are other things I could do within my investments to reduce tax? And so from that, I, I ultimately ended up getting my enrolled agent designation through the Internal Revenue Service, which gives me some type of you know level of, of, of credibility with the IRS and certainly with, with other folks, although many, many people don't know what the enrolled agent designation is. It's really hard to get. It's been around for a long, long time, and, and it certainly does have some credibility in in the, in, in the space that we work in. And, and so from that, I used to get lots of referrals just on the tax side. And when you get involved on the tax side and you do planning is what we do on a comprehensive nature you got to understand everything. So it ended up developing into some meaningful relationships on that side. And then given the fact that I was from, from Canada, I, I ended up working with a few, a few other colleagues and we sort of carved out this niche many years ago. And Canadians are wonderful people. And so uh, you know, we really enjoyed working with them. And of course, you know, the number of Americans moving to the U.S., I'm sorry, to, to Canada and the issues that fall with them as well made the, the work really, really worthwhile. And so it's, it's just something that that um, you know, I, I've stayed too close to for so many years, and with the continual changes that we that we constantly see, it it allows me to really continue to grow and prosper and share those ideas with my colleagues, and then apply those to the clients that uh, that seek us out. I think they're uniquely positioned, actually, for me, given given the fact that you know you have the experience in the U.S., you live in both countries right now. So this, I mean, this is the perfect role for you. So this is this is fantastic. So let's let's get into our agenda. I mean, let's let, let's maybe dig in a little bit in the content in terms of mm, what advisors really need to know, especially when 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 they might be approached by by prospects or clients who you know, how or have certain exposure to the U.S. So let's maybe start with the U.S. immigration issues. You know, if you can, you know, what, what as advisors do we need to know in terms of, you know, visas and uh, or a green card? What are some of the issues, maybe some of the key issues? I, I, I probably won't, we won't have enough time to cover everything here, but uh, right. let's, may, let's maybe cover some of the key issues around the immigration here. Sure, because that typically is, is, a, is a good, it's a starting point. I mean, you just can't go to the U.S. and think you can stay there for long periods of time, you know. It's it's interesting. Uh, over the course of the year, I will get one or two phone calls from clients. I remember last year getting a phone call from a, a prospective client in Hawaii, and they called me because they wanted to understand why they couldn't live in Hawaii for the rest of their lives because they own a home in Hawaii. I'm like, well, you, so you own a home in Hawaii. Does that give you the privilege and the right to live in Hawaii for the rest of your life? For the rest of your lives? And they, yeah. I mean, that's what we've been told. So they had this mindset that they're going to go ahead and, and just, you know, live there for their lives. I said, listen, if everybody could do that, be a, the U.S. would be a very, very different place. You just can't buy a property and expect that you can live there. There are rules that, that govern how much time you can, you can spend there. So typically when we look at the kinds of clients that advisors often bump into, I think the first and foremost would be snowbirds, right? So we have a number of clients that from a lifestyle perspective might choose to, to spend time in the U.S. And in that particular case, the, the immigration hurdles are, are not significant. I mean, you know, when you cross the border and, and go down to Arizona or Palm Springs or someplace in Texas or Georgia or whatever, you know, when you when you cross the border, you're going to kind of be slotted in a visa category, visa category called B2, which is a pleasure visa. And the B2 visa effectively allows one to be in the U.S. for not greater than six months in an account on a county year basis. So no stamp and a passport. Down they go as a snowbird. And then, again, from a physical perspective, they really can't be in the U.S. for longer than a year and longer than six months, forgive me. And if they are, 
then they're going to get spanked and they can certainly be denied entry to the U.S. You know, it's, it's, it's a privilege to be in the U.S. It's not a right. So you don't want to push that envelope pretty closely. And, and along with the immigration side, maybe later we'll talk about the tax issues. But if we focus on immigration, you know, most of our clients have have uh, the, the right to, to be in the U.S. on, a, on the B-2 visa and, again, and go down on that, on that basis. Another um, area where you know clients look to us is is um, you know because of the the advent of, of, of internet dating or the, the internet websites and so those kinds of things dating sites is more often than not clients are meeting their their future partner um, by virtue of the internet and and that in, leads into interesting relationships and obviously opportunities to move here or there and so we see that oftentimes and if that's the case. There are a variety of, of visas that relate to uh, you know marrying somebody in the U.S. and then getting a visa to allow them to go down to the U.S. So that's something that we have to get involved in and looking at the exit planning from Canada and the entry planning on the U.S. side, healthcare, all other kinds of things. But interestingly enough, you know we have a number of clients that that really want to live in the U.S. and they can sort of what we call buy their way into the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so there's a visa that that we often talk about called the EB5 visa, and it's effectively it's effectively a visa that allows an individual to go ahead and make an investment either into the establishment of a, of a new business that creates certain number of jobs and, and economic support in a specific area, or they can invest in what's called a regional center, which allows them to be a part of a investment that's sort of governed by other folks that have established viable business enterprises. Um, staple center outside of, of uh, where, where the Kings play and basketball play in, in Los Angeles, that's an EB-5 investment project. There's a, a number of facilities outside many of uh, many sports franchises in the US, hotels, real retail areas. How much money do you need? How much money do you need actually have need to have to be able to actually buy yourself uh, you know, uh, this kind of visa? So up until the 21st of November of this month, it used to be $500,000. So the clients that we work with that there's no other option to, from, a, from an employment perspective or family, you know, basis, whether they're going to marry somebody or they have, a, they have a family member that can sponsor them, then they've got to, and they want to live in the U.S., then they got to go the EB-5 route or generally. So it's $500,000. However, on the 21st of November, that's going up to, I believe it's $950,000. So you've got just a few days to sort of get in there and, and, and buy your way. And, and, and so the green card is a conditional green card. We had a client recently, two years ago, that ended up, his investment on the on the EB-5 side was through uh, the Children's Hospital in, in, in Buffalo, New York, I believe. Um, so there are a number of others. And we work very closely with Immigration Council in, in the U.S. to help sort of find those. There's no incentive that we derive. We don't get any finder's fees or commissions through these projects. Um, they're kind of a means to an end. And I remember that the Hawaii couple, I was kind of going over what their options were to allow them to live in the U.S. on a permanent basis outside of getting divorced and marrying somebody else and going that path, um, which they weren't prepared to do uh, for obvious reasons. I said, you know, you can kind of buy your way in the U.S. And this couple had a net worth of $2 million. And they said, well, we'd, we'd like to do that. I'm like, well, you have a net worth of $2 million and you're going to go ahead and lock up a half million dollars in this investment. It's not prudent. It's just not the right thing to do kind of thing. So so that option is available. And then, and then the other option typically is going to be you know, getting a green card, again, through family sponsorship. There are other options through various types of investments, but it would be, uh, you know, they would have to continue to work and things like that. So many times clients don't want to work any longer. They just want to live down there and retire down there. We just had a large client that was living in the U.S. for quite some time, had a green card, moved back to Canada, and then chose that they wanted to move back to the U.S., but had given up their green card. So they have uh, three children that are U.S. citizens. And so one of their, their daughters went ahead and sponsored them for a green card. So we went through that process with them. 
So as we tell most prospective clients, we try to do as much as we possibly can for clients. Uh, but there's two areas that we, we we can't really operate on because we're not lawyers. And that would be on the immigration side. So we're very fortunate to have meaningful relationships with, with folks in both countries. So these, the immigration side is really important. And then, of course, on the estate planning side. So we have, we have you know, a short list of folks that, that I call our cross-border savvy. Um, they understand these issues in, in both the U.S. and Canada, and they can, can draft the appropriate documents. So we'll do the planning there. We'll sort of help them map out the path that they need to get from here to there. But in terms of the actual documentation and the stick handling along the way, that's going to be you know, through other, other advisors. And I will say this too, because of the present administration, that process is a bit longer too, right? So it's not as quick as it used to be. Uh, so there are a number of other hurdles and roadblocks that, that exist now for people. Right. So, I mean, just from whatever you just said right now, I mean, there's so many different options, really, so many different visas. And I actually wasn't really aware of that. And I'm sure you're probably, you've probably heard or dealt with cases when people want to or are thinking about renouncing their citizenship in you know, either the US or Canada. So have you advised clients who basically decide to go that route? Oh, yeah. That's had over the years, we've had tons of conversations with folks around the implications of renouncing their citizenship or, or giving back their green card. There's, there's other issues that apply to, to folks who've had green cards for, for eight out of the last 15 years. And, and there's some other requirements there as well um, that would define these folks as long-term residents. And if they have a net worth of more than $2 million and then choose to come back to Canada and then give up their green card, there are, there are expatriation tax issues, or I guess from a Canadian perspective, we call you know, exit tax and disposition issues that come about. So lots of people talk about the, the 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 issues around you know what if I just gave back my just gave up my citizenship or what if I just gave back my green card what does that look like and for some people it it can be not a big deal and for others it can be a significant deal and so you know when you talk about the the bigger picture here I would say that the majority of the folks that we talk to generally choose then not to go ahead and renounce their citizenship you know having a green card is a little bit different issue but in terms of actually giving up their citizenship that's a bigger deal and I think it's a bigger deal because we don't know that the what the impact might be if you choose to return to the U.S. and uh, I'll, I'll often use the, the term that you know I've I I had my green I gave up my green card many years ago I now have a work visa I'm married to a U.S. citizen certainly can get a green card back and and so you know when I ultimately gave my green card back many years ago you know, I would get scrutinized by certain on, on, on a number of occasions by officers at the border because from their perspective, I'd given up the greatest gift in the world that I'd ever had. Right. And so <laughs> why was I in the U.S.? What was the nature of my work and those kinds of things? So it, it happens. You know, I've been doing this a long time, so I, I can share stories you know, that have, that have occurred to me. And, you know, one of the things I, I really enjoy when I when I have lunch or visit with my U.S. immigration friends, it's wonderful to hear these stories of of, of people trying to get into the border. I just had a phone call with a colleague of mine, a friend of mine who works at a, a large investment firm in Edmonton, uh, one of the large bank owned firms. And he said that he's got a, a prospective client right now that he's working with who ended up getting a Hawaii driver's license because he wanted to save on his green fees in Hawaii. And he said, could, could he do that? I'm like, uh, what are the implications? Like, well, I think there's some implications here. You just can't get a Hawaii driver's license. He obviously must have lied suggest that uh, he was a U.S. resident because if you go on the Hawaii website, which we looked at yesterday together, he's got to prove that he was a U.S. Uh, resident um, from an immigration perspective, and we know he's not. So, you know, the issues are what if he was coming down to, to Hawaii from Edmonton or Calgary and he got, for whatever reason, thrown into secondary with the immigration officer, they happen mm -hmm. to look in his wallet, which they have the right to do, and see that he has a Hawaii driver's license. It's like, well, why do you have this when you have a U.S. passport or any of so, you know, people try to bend the envelope a little bit and we, we do see that and you got to be careful because technology changes things and, 
And these folks do have lots of, uh, of, of, of authority and weight that they can throw around on occasion. So you got to be careful. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. And I'm sure you have a, a lot of interesting stories that uh, we do. Some of them we probably won't be able to dive into here. But that's true. So let's talk about, so this is interesting. You mentioned, I mean, announcing citizenship, I mean, on one side, it's a big decision, you know, personal decision, of course, ideologically, I guess. But on the other side, there is, there's, you know, tax, estate, uh, you know, planning issues. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, some of the income tax in the U.S. and how, you know, how does this work? And of course, I mean, there, I'm sure there's a little bit of uncertainty and you alluded to it earlier, given the current administration. But what, can you tell us a little bit more, you know, what, what are some of the important uh, elements uh, that uh, we need to, we should know about income tax in the U.S.? So I guess we can look at it from two two sides. We can look at the snowbird side, the the, the, Canadian, the traditional king that spends time in the U.S., and we can look at it from the the American, the U.S. citizen, or somebody who becomes a U.S. resident. So maybe we'll focus initially on the, the snowbird side. So if we have clients that that do spend time in the U.S. and they don't exceed the six months, then there may be some U.S. tax issues here if they meet what's called a substantial presence test. And a substantial presence test is a calculation of the number of days that a person, a non-U.S. citizen, a Canadian snowbird, spends in the U.S. over a three-year period of time. And so basically, the calculation is such that we take the number of days in the current year, we add one-third of the days the year before that, and one-sixth of the days the year before that. And if you run that, that calculation, if the sum of that number is over 183 days, then under the substantial presence test that the U.S. has, then that person would be deemed to be a U.S. tax resident. So the next question becomes, okay, if they're a U.S. tax resident, what U.S. tax filing requirements might that individual have? And unless they're renting property, unless they've generated some U.S. source income from a trader business or they've sold real property, in many cases, there's not going to be a U.S. tax filing requirement for them in terms of the filing of a, of a tax return. And the traditional return that we'd often file if they're renting property, selling property would be what's called a 1040NR net uh, rental income from from the property that they're renting in the U.S. But if they don't have any U.S. source income from from that uh, that effort, then they would have to file a specific form because they've met the substantial presence test. They have to file a form called an 8840 form. That's an IRS form. It's the closer connection exception statement. And so that form would basically say, hey, guys, I acknowledge that I've met the substantial presence test. Under your rules, I'm a U.S. resident. However, there's a number of questions that you would answer on the second page that would suggest that you are a tax resident or you have a closer tie to Canada. And so as long as you file that form, then effectively that's your out from being deemed a U.S. tax resident. So, you know, there's lots of confusion in many cases around that. And, and, and these rules have been around for quite some time. But, you know, we advocate that clients should consistently file that form if they meet that test, you know, because we don't know, you know, what type of, of enforcement might occur down. The, the other issue, I think, that, which is the bigger issue, is the, 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 the issue that relates to whether you are a U.S. because you're a U.S. citizen, you know, the U.S. and, and uh, Eritrea, which is a former part of Ethiopia, are, I think two of the only countries that impose their tax system based on citizenship. So if you're a citizen of the U.S., you have a, a, an obligation to comply to with U.S. tax rules irrespective of where you live, die, have assets, earn income or whatever. So you have lots of clients that live in Canada or that were uh, that, that, are, that are U.S. citizens that have to file U.S. tax returns. So our job as advisors is to make sure that we can uh, structure their, their investments and their financial plans in a manner that's not going to put them offside on the U.S. side of things because they happen to also be a Canadian tax resident. And when we have laws changing all the time, as we saw, you know, in late December 2017, you know, that threw a monkey wrench for, again, Canadians that have, you know, businesses in Canada, incorporated businesses in Canada. The U.S. doesn't look at, the, the U.S. looks at, at, at Canada as an offshore jurisdiction. So the kinds of things that you do in the Cayman Islands or in the, the Turks and Caicos, 
that you might think that might be smart from a tax perspective, you know, the U.S. says, hey, if you're doing them in, in Saskatchewan, it's like you're in the Turks and Caicos, right? So we have to be, in, be make sure that the things that we do in Canada are not going to put them offside from U.S. perspective. And some rules that kicked in in late December of 2017 did just that. So it's important that we stay abreast of all the stuff. And again, with maybe a new administration next next year and the prospect of different wealth tax, if Bernie gets in or or Warren gets in, you know, that's going to change things a bit. So the nice thing about our practice, and I guess why it's fun and maybe why I'm enthusiastic about what we do, is it's constantly changing. And our job is to make sure that our clients are aware of the, are the good and the bad and the ugly of these changes. Wow, this is interesting. So this is, there's a lot of things to pay attention to. So so let's, you know, let's maybe just talk a little bit more about the investment management and, and even banking, right? Because the thing is, you know, even whether you're a snowbird or whether you became, whether you have to basically file tax return in the U.S. or, or basically you're, you're, I would say, on the other side. I mean, what are some limitations or what are some of the things that you can can do in terms of, you know, having, for example, keeping investment accounts in the U.S., right? Because even, for example, if I'm going to be qualified as not just a snowbird, I may want to have access to different currency, right, in the U.S. But can I invest? for example, in US. I mean, what are some of the rules around around that? So we benefit a lot from that because no, no, you just can't go ahead and open an account at, at Charles Schwab because you live in, in, in Edmonton unless you're a US citizen. But we have to look at the fact that there are unique tax issues, obviously, for folks that have accounts in different countries and different states. Um, but there are also regulatory security rules that, that prohibit individuals from having accounts in the U.S. Um, I, at the presentation that, that we were both at a number of, of weeks ago that I spoke at, I was talking about a specific situation with a, an advisor at a large a large firm in, here in Canada who called me because we had a, a client that received an inheritance from a parent that passed away. And this uh, advisor, obviously for selfish reasons, wanted to keep the accounts on his platform. And I knew that that wasn't going to be possible given the compliance requirements that uh, that, that he had, as, as, that we all have in, in Canada, and also the unique tax issues. This client was no longer a resident of Canada for tax purposes. We didn't want the account to look like that was a, res, a resident of Canada for tax purposes. But the client, the, the, the individual sort of said, listen, I've, I've got clients that do this all the time. And, and, and I'm like, well, you might, you might want to check with your compliance department to see if what you're doing is correct. And, and, and I knew it, it wasn't. And but I was just going to let him kind of find that that out. And in the same breath of the conversation, he told me that he knew 90% more about cross-border stuff than most people in this firm. And then, and then surprisingly enough, at the end of the conversation, he said, oh, is it true that Americans in Canada have to follow U.S. tax returns? I'm like, oh, my gosh. So he found out the hard way. Yeah, I said, you know, just I, I sent him an email saying, these are the things we need to be aware of. These are the things I need to make sure that the account's tagged as a non-resident account. I make, we need to make sure that NR4 steps from for are going to CRA on any investment income here and talk to your compliance department. And of course, you know, by the end of the week, I was right, he was wrong, you know, whatever. But he knew that he couldn't no longer keep the account. So we see that a lot where you've got to be careful about soliciting business in the U.S. if you're not licensed there and, and vice versa. And so we're seeing, we're benefiting a lot because we are licensed and registered in both countries. You know, the Schwab's of the world, USAA's of the world, Fidelity, all these large investment firms when you move to the to, to to another jurisdiction, particularly Canada, they don't want you to, to you keep you can't keep those accounts there any longer. Retirement accounts are a little bit different, but traditional taxable accounts, no, you can't do that. And the other thing that that we see happening a lot too is that an advisor down there that doesn't want, or, or in Canada doesn't want to lose the account, they'll go ahead and change an address and just say, well, let's use your mom's address or your friend's address. Well, that's a big no-no too, because mm-hmm. again, 
if you're making a trade in that account and, and your client's in Iowa and you're in Alberta, you're not licensed to, to do that in Iowa. And I just talk to your compliance person. They'll tell you that you can't do that. That's, that's breaking the law. So we see that kind of stuff as well. And, and of course, there are tax issues too. If, if state of Iowa, that uh, there's, there's information coming to them that suggests that they live in Iowa, uh, like our friend with the Hawaii driver's license, the states might be looking for some rec- reconciliation of, of the activity on, on a state income tax return. And that, that comes about as well. So, you know, we have seen uh, investment firms, one of my colleagues mentioned he, had a, he has an account with a large investment firm in the U.S. and he's entitled to have it because he's a US, U.S. citizen, but he was working up in Canada. And, mm-hmm. you know, one, and so he's logging into his account every other day or whatever to check on things. And uh, he got a letter from the firm saying, hey, like, where are you? Because what's happening is these large firms are seeing where you're logging in from. And if you're logging in from you know, Toronto, and you happen to have an account that says you live in, you know, California, they want to understand where are you really living here. And so there's significant liability that that firms and advisors have by breaking these rules. And with technology, it's even scarier. So we don't want to see clients playing games. And, and so we are benefiting, we are selfishly benefiting from that because we are seeing clients in both countries being kicked off their platforms, and they might be able to find a, a, an investment management relationship. But generally, there are tax issues whenever clients or accounts have to be moved. And mm-hmm. so it's a much bigger picture. So if, if clients can sort of buy into the total solution that we provide um, and the value that's, that's achieved from that, then then I think we're all better off. Right. I mean, they, ultimately, they have a lot more flexibility because they're dealing with one firm and you can basically provide, you know, just you can, you can move accounts, you can advise uh, at the same time, you can you can do whatever they need. And it's under one roof. So you mentioned that there are some exemptions in terms of or differences when it comes to treatment of retirement accounts, right? Or for example, I don't know, let's talk about, you know, your social security. How does this work? You know, if I'm, for example, an American decided to live in Canada, you know, am I still eligible for those benefits or or that's not the case anymore? Yeah, so it, it depends. So, so, you know, every situation is unique. Mm-hmm. We, we have a number of articles on our website that speak to this in terms of you know, if you were working in the U.S. for a period of time and then you come to Canada, we're working here. Are you still entitled to Social Security benefits and, and how do they sort of sync with CPP or old age security benefits? And and so that's a, a unique area and, and certainly an area that we like to exploit. I mean, there are some some situations where we work with clients where, you know, that event may be so way off that it's something that there's so much uncertainty as to what's going to happen with Social Security in the U.S. and and and, and socialized medicine down there, you know, effectively Medicare and so on and so forth. But but certainly we, we look at that. And there are clients that we work with that, yes, do receive Social Security benefits, CPP and old age security benefits. I think one of the most unique things that, that clients um, are not often aware of is that we know we have the old age security clawback here in Canada. Mm-hmm. You know, when your income exceeds a certain threshold, then that starts getting clawed back. Mm-hmm. One of the unique things that uh, comes about is if you ultimately leave Canada and move to the U.S. and you are over 65 and you are entitled to old age security and CPP by virtue of your contributions at the time that you live physically live in Canada, those benefits are not taxable in Canada any longer. If they're certainly no longer a Canadian tax resident, there's no withholding tax on those benefits are paid out. Canadian government will pay those benefits in U.S. dollars if you so ask them to. But there is no clawback any longer. So if you move to the U.S. and you are entitled to receive those benefits like my parents do, there is no clawback whatsoever, even if your income is a million dollars a year. So you'll get your OAS and CPP. And in fact, it's taxed more favorably in the U.S. as well. So under the the treaty and the totalization agreement that we have between both countries, CPP and old age security benefits are taxed the same way that Social Security benefits are taxed in the U.S. side. So generally, we have lower marginal rates in the U.S. And then in terms of those benefits, only up to 85% of that benefit will be subject to tax on the U.S. side. 
So, so that can be a, a nice little, you know, benefit, you know, if you have to acquire a, a healthcare policy, whether it be a, an expatriate policy, or let's say that you have a client that, that is entitled to Medicare by virtue of being married to a, a U.S. citizen spouse who's receiving Medicare, or they have to pay for those premiums because they didn't qualify in terms of the quarters that are required to, to qualify for Medicare, which is effectively socialized medicine for, for older, mature folks. Then that extra OAS that they're going to be getting, albeit in U.S. dollars, can sort of help subsidize that, that additional cost. So there are some some benefits that are kind of unique that uh, that many many clients, prospective clients, just aren't aware of on the on the on the retirement planning side. So we have we often have clients, you know, our traditional clients that would move from Canada to the U.S. You know, we would typically keep their registered assets in Canada as the custodian of choice that we work with up here, and then all the other assets would be on the U.S. side as well. And we are fortunate because of the nature of the work that we do and the and the account size that we do have. The one of our custodians in the U.S. allows us to maintain. Canadian dollar account. So that's very, very rare that you mm-hmm. typically will not be able to find a, a custodian in the U.S. that will have a comfort level in keeping the dollars in CAD. So if you've got a client moving from the U.S., I'm sorry, from Canada to the U.S., that currency hit is pretty yucky. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, their options really legally were are to keep it in a bank in Canada and keep it in CAD. They certainly can't keep it at their investment firm if they are, uh, if their tax accounts and, and their advisor's not licensed and things like that. So we can go ahead and consolidate those assets in the U.S. side, manage them consistently with how we're managing money in the U.S. and Canada. And then our technology platform that we have allows us to go ahead and report performance in, in, in both currencies and all under one statement. So um, we typically have two custodians, one in Canada and one in the U.S. that we, that we work with. But we, we, do have, we have two custodial relationships in Canada and three on the U.S. side, but typically in most cases, it's going to be you know, one here and, and one there. Makes sense. Oh, this is really interesting. We're just getting a whole bit more complexity. So, you know, retirement planning. So let's maybe just close that with just some of the you know, aspects of, you know, estate planning. I mean, is there something that we need to pay attention to? I'm, I'm sure there is. <laughs> but what are some of the th- key things that we need to pay attention to when it comes to estate planning? So, you know, estate planning, it's, it's always a moving target because of, of where the clients might live and whether they're citizens and certainly where their kids and beneficiaries might might be. You know, uh, up till a number of years ago, we really would focus a lot on the U.S. estate tax because the exemptions were at levels that many of our clients had net wealth or their gross estates were at. And so we had to really do a lot of planning around that so that if there was the their estate when they became angels were greater than the exemption amount, there, there, there would be exposure. And so there are many situations where you'd have a U.S. citizen or resident in Canada that actually nothing in the U.S. side, but by virtue of being a citizen and having a net worth of greater than $5 million, they got to pay the piper nine months from the date of death to the U.S. side. But now the exemptions are rather high. So they're $11.4 million for uh, an individual. And so for a marriage couple, that's $22.8 million. That's a lot of money. And so to the extent that you don't have clients that exceed those levels, it's not as big a deal as it used to be. And for snowbirds, it's not as big as it used to be because those exemptions still somewhat apply to them as well. But what we have to be cognizant of is, again, the present administration is going to continue those exemptions through the end of 2025. They'll be adjusted for inflation every year. So next mm-hmm. year it could be, let's say, you know, $12.2 million, for example, as opposed to 11 point, I'm sorry, it's 11.4 now, let's say it's 11.8 million next year, for example. At the end of 2025, the, the exemptions are to go back to sort of levels adjusted for inflation that they were prior to the changes in, in 2017. Or if we have a new administration and a new Congress next year or the year after, a totally new ball, totally new ball game. So it, it so it, we have to go back and revisit all this kind of stuff. And so the the role of you know, getting into their into their trusts or into their the state plan documents is going to be really really critical. So we we kind of manage that and we try to certainly make clients aware of, of what we think is going on, gifting issues, again having beneficiaries in different jurisdictions. 
we, we benefit a lot from clients where we have mom or dad becomes an angel in Canada and their beneficiaries happen to be the U.S. And mom and dad's assets are in Canada and they have limited options in terms of keeping it to Canada. So how do we get it to the U.S. and what can we do there? So we, we get involved in, in that regard. We have situations where the, the role of revocable living trusts are far more common in the U.S. than they are in Canada. But the trust taxation is very, very different in both jurisdictions. So if we have a client moving from the U.S. to, to Canada and they have a revocable living trust where all their assets are, are settled into that trust or in the name of the trust and they want to move to Canada, we've got to unwind that trust before they come to Canada because of our tax rules here. And we have to look at different estate planning documents. So you know, looking at the role of, of wills and, and making sure that it has specific language in there from a U.S. perspective to, to make sure that it's consistent for U.S. planning reasons. And again, you know, if you've got a family in Canada, but let's say your executor's in the U.S., that could create some challenges too. So, you know, we're not attorneys, but we've done this long enough to understand these issues. And so we can kind of help with the planning side of things and then reach out to their existing counsel to ensure that the, the, that the documents are going to meet their intentions first and foremost, but be consistent from a Canada-U.S. perspective. And we're fortunate that we do have folks in, in most major cities that, that have this expertise and can kind of do that. So it's really critical. Like on the Snowbird side, making sure that we have, if you've got property in Arizona, for example, making sure that you have a health directive, you know, is what we call them in the U.S. I'm sorry, in Canada, we call them health directives, but in the U.S. living wills or power of attorneys. So you, you think that you got that all covered in your in your state planning package in Canada? No. In many cases, a lot of the stuff is, is specific to the jurisdiction of which that property is or, or in which you are. So making sure that we, we, we exploit those areas as part of the planning process is important as well. Uh, this is really interesting. And so, especially when I was looking at the uh, total exemption in the U.S., I mean, right now, as you mentioned, 11.4 million. And, but, you know, I mean, to, historically, I think it was maybe you know, 50, 40 percent of that, right? around four to five. And I was when I looked at the chart and I think it was done, went down to zero, I think, 2010 or around that time was so interesting. I mean, how do you plan for such wide you know, swings just both ways? This is like you were essentially you're just waking up in the morning, reading something in a news and, and basically you have to change your approach to planning, right? Because, you know, it, it goes, the swings are just so big, right? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, that, you know, 2010 was an interesting year. I used to make a joke, the joke, if you're wealthy, make sure you, you hire food testers because your, your, your kids might uh, poison you because there's big money to be made here. You know, there were, and there were a number of, of, of very wealthy people that died the, the, that year and had faced no U.S. estate taxes uh, at all. The two that come to my mind are George Steinbrenner, who was the, you know, the owner of, the, I think, the Yankees, New York Yankees. So he, he died that year. And then Charles Duncan, who, uh, who was the uh, owner of, of Enterprise Energy, a massive amount of wealth that uh, totally was, that was, was uh, not subject to any estate tax. But it, 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 it does. I mean, if, if Senator Warren's or Bernie's wealth tax proposals come into play, that's a, that's a game changer. The kinds of things that we have clients not being exposed to now or even Snowbird, it's, it's, a, it's a game changer now. And so you have to revisit all that kind of stuff. And so that's why it's incumbent upon us as advisors that, that practice in this area to, to, to make our clients aware of, the, again, as I said earlier, the good, the bad, and the ugly of this. And that's why it makes our work more, ever more challenging. And it's just the nature of the business. You know, markets go up and down. And so we have to obviously look at those issues. Tax laws change. Family dynamics change. I mean, how many people, you know, we don't often encourage our clients to become angels. And you think, you know, people, and then somebody dies and money's involved and family members change. And that's, that's not nice to see, you know. And so we have to sort of look at the, you know, you know, when we get involved in the process with our clients, we go beyond just the, the tangible sort of financial tax issues. 
know, do you get along with your sister? I have one client right now I'm working with where, you know, she claims she's getting along with her sister, but I know that there's some dynamics beneath that because I, I can I can hear it. I know it. And I, I know when, the, when mommy comes an angel, there's going to be some challenges here. You know, the sister has, you know, a few more kids than this one sister and Anyway, so so that's an interesting planning dilemma that we're trying to sort of deal with, and I'm I'm trying to encourage this this family to to, to really talk about that. Like, let's war game this out here, because uh, you know when mom becomes an angel, what's going to happen here, and, and how do you sort of see things going? Because I'm worried that it's not going to go very well. You know, absolutely, that's a huge area. And so when it comes to cross border issues, I I think you just signaled and highlighted a lot of potential issues or, or areas of danger as you as we went along. But what are some of the I would say the biggest cross-border planning mistakes that advisors who especially not experience might be making? I think the biggest issue is that you know, planners sort of getting involved in areas that they're not, don't have the skill set to do it. You know, when we're talking about assets, just like in my, my earlier comment of the advisor that, that claimed to know more about this area than 90% of the people at his firm, he didn't really know that. And, you know, when there's assets involved, you know, advisors for selfish reasons We'll do certain things or play certain games that that can really compromise the things that that we've done from a planning perspective, and I and I see, we see that all the time. You know, we see addresses putting on accounts that suggest that they're in one place when they're not. So we've got to really be careful. So if you don't know what you're doing, you shouldn't be doing it. I mean, a significant liability not only to the client but certainly to the advisor and to the firm. So it's you know we tend to work well with others. I mean, there is a point in time where where the the advisor has to step back and say, you know what. I'm not helping this client. I'd like to, but I can't. So I need to pass them off to somebody that has that unique skill set that's required. It's the best thing at all. And in many cases, in some cases, that's going to mean that the relationship ends, that the assets have to be transferred, that the relationship you know, is going to be different. And that's just the nature of our business. You know, we, we don't want to, you know, as I said, we, we work well with others. I think when when other advisors get a chance to sort of you know, do some research in terms of our, our websites and, and may, have, may have heard me speak or read a book that we've written or something like that, they, they do understand that we, we have the ability to, to help them. And if we can't, you know, we certainly have a number of other folks that we, we might be able to refer them off to, whether it be an attorney, um, whether it be just an advisor that might be licensed that can just do the investment work, or maybe just a tax person. I mean, we do get lots of inquiries during tax season. Can you just do my taxes? Yeah, we can just do your taxes, but we're not just going to do your taxes. It's either going to be everything or nothing at all. And if that doesn't make sense, it doesn't make sense. We're not we're not for everybody, but for those people that we can serve, we 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 do a we try to do a really really good job. And I think the other really good thing about our practice is is it's collaborative. I mean, yeah, I know a lot uh, as many of my colleagues do because we've been doing this for a long time, and I we have the the, the credentials to support that. But in, in many cases, uh, they're typically going to be a, a team involved. It might be me and two other colleagues. And the reason that we do that is because, you know, we, we want to make sure that the service model is adhered to. So if I'm not around, there's somebody else that's that's going to be able to, to deal with those issues and has the skill set to do so. So our, our, our clients and prospective clients generally are going to talk to me and, and maybe one or two other, other folks. And then we have our team kind of divided into different areas. So we've got folks in California, mm-hmm. Phoenix, uh, here in Calgary. I've got a colleague I work with here in Calgary as well. 
and then certainly Toronto and, and Florida. So we try to make sure that the experience the clients face is, is going to be a, a good one and it's, it's going to serve their needs very well. Makes sense. And you know what, I think we uh, probably, uh, I think you highlighted, eliminated a lot of things in, in this conversation just to basically assure advisors that this is a really complex area. This is not something that you can you know brush out your skills over, over the weekend and you really need to talk to somebody who who is experienced because you can you can create a you know you can create a lot of damage for your clients so you just want to make sure that maybe a decision point would be at some point for advisors to say okay well maybe you know if i can handle the, some of the situations because we're just getting you know we're encroaching i don't know just a little bit into this area maybe i can help them but typically we just need to look at the whole picture right i mean there's so many different challenges so i totally understand that so i, I still have uh, i like to ask a question just tips for new advisors joining the industry and given your area I mean, like, what would be the best way if somebody wants to basically, you know, learn a little bit more about that? Just work with you, Terry, or is this the, what's the best way to basically learn this area? Well, if if I were an advisor and I was looking to to do something, I'd certainly want to focus on a, on a niche. I mean, and when I've spoken to, to uh, advisors that are just starting the business, I certainly encourage them to look at this from a, a broader perspective. So really look at this from a planning perspective. I'm a registered financial planner. You've been kind enough to, to support and, and attend our conferences over the so our symposiums over the years. I think you know. I, again, I started out as a planner. I certainly could have just you know done mutual funds and banged a couple of tax returns out a year. But but my focus was I could add more value by doing much more. And so I think focusing on the comprehensive planning approach I think makes an awful lot of sense. And you know to to have a niche, whether that niche is to serve, let's say, divorce people or to su- su- support physicians. I mean, yeah, we do get phone calls from from advisors saying, I'd love to learn what you do. How can we do that? You know, we got plenty of years. I mean, you know, it's 33 years I've been doing this. It's been a long, long time. And, and you know, be, to be able to, to to take those real world experiences and to apply them to, to clients goes a long way. So if somebody wants to get licensed in the U.S., or get designations in the U.S., go for it. I know a number of, of you know, peers and colleagues that do financial planning that are licensed in the U.S., whether they have, this, they have the CFP here and the CFP there, and good good for them. And, and they may go a long way, and they may have a skill set that will help certain clients, but I think what often really helps a lot is, is that uh, clients can relate to the things, the same things that we want to relate to. So I guess, you know, reading, you know, reading and attending conferences, there's lots of literature that is out there. You know, I, I do help people on occasion on a pro bono basis, you know, on our RFP forum, we get lots of questions related to this or that. I'm happy to share that information. Mm-hmm. And and you learn over time from that. But if I were advisor starting out, I would really want to focus on a niche. So looking at planning, you know, maybe looking at the, the divorce side of things or just specializing in certain certain area, I think will really go a long way. I think it's harder with the, the advent of robo-advising. And I mean, it's the pressures to, to this industry are, are coming from all sides and uh, your costs going down. So you really got to create that unique, that USP, that unique selling proposition that you can convey. And that may not be easy, as easy as it used to be, but I would really encourage people to focus and look at the, the total picture. That's a precious piece of advice, I think. I think niching down is definitely a great uh, great strategy. And again, I mean, if you want to do the same thing what Terry does right now, <laughs> I mean, it's going to be a long journey. So I think I think uh, most advisors probably are, are really focused on their niche areas and probably it's probably more mostly Canadian clients. But I think the, uh, the conversation, they may want to have a conversation with you you know, if there is one client that has maybe some certain U.S. exposure, and I think 
Terry is a nice guy. So, and I'm <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure he's uh, he's going to be able to help you. So don't uh, don't worry about reaching out. So as we were wrapping up here, I want to talk uh, about some of the projects, Terry, that you have on a go. So what's what's most exciting for you in your business right now? Just basically over the next six twelve months, is there anything you know spe- specific or exciting that you're planning on doing? Well, I think one of the questions we were going to talk about earlier was just like how do we get, how do we get clients? And we we are extremely fortunate in that we don't have to make a lot of effort to get clients. Our our website's really good. We're, we're thought leaders in, in our space. So we do lots of writing and blogging and things like that. So lots of, of, of that leads to prospective opportunities for us. You know, many years ago, I, I wrote a, a best-selling book on sober and stuff. And then I, I co-wrote a book with a former colleague and, and those books did really, really well. And they're fun to write and, and, and they, were, they were worthwhile. And the publishers has asked me you know, every year, can you rewrite those things? And, and I'd like to, I just been too busy to do that. So I, I'm hoping uh, that I can find some time because these, you know, my snowboard book is now over 10 years old, right? And and I've been kind of putting it off because you know I, I wanted to make sure that the the content was relevant and the tax laws are always changing. So you know now we have a, a little bit of certainty. So I, I, I'd like to find the time to, to do that. So so we'll see. But you know we're doing some exciting things within the firm. You know, you and I have talked about uh, we use Snap within our practice to, for for certain types of clients and. We talked about sort of incorporating some of the things that you're doing with the things that we're doing because over the years, you know, there's just there's no off-the-shelf stuff that we can find to do the things that we need. So over the years, I've developed my own templates. So we've developed our own spreadsheets and templates that we use for our clients. So it's kind of unique. And we just went through a big, big, major project internally. We created this this master retirement spreadsheet with tax that's tax sensitive to each jurisdiction, state, and province, whatever. And so. Uh, we're just sort of bringing, you know, we're just reviewing that within within the firm to incorporate that. You know, we're doing some exciting things in the investment side. So um, I'm not involved in the investment side of things, but we've got some really smart people in in our group that that are, are really doing some neat things there, and, and the client experience is, is even better. You know, we're we're just trying to ref- to to make sure that the service model is continued. That uh, that we can. You know, I think our biggest fear is that because of the growth of the practice, that that we can handle that that growth, and because the number of folks that we do have and and the unique skills that that, that that we have and the collaborative nature of the work that we do, it's been working well. But that's probably our biggest worry is just making sure that we can fulfill the needs of the clients who are coming in. It's not to bolster brag. It's just, it's a great, it's a good position to be in. And we just want to make sure that we can provide that that service and, and expectations that, that, that clients have. So it's 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 exciting. I mean, I'm, I got a smile on my face and I work with some great people. So that's even better. So, you know, it took me a long time to get to this level and, and here we are. And we're just enjoying it. So just overnight success after 33 years of yeah. doing this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. That's that's fantastic. Looks like you have a lot of interesting projects on the go right now. And so I already asked you for a lot of advice, but you know, this podcast is all about growing our practice. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for the listeners? Just one thing, what they can do to grow their practice. Yeah, I mean, you know what? I think... I think advisors have a right to say no, you know, uh, there, they, there has to be a fit on both sides. And, you know, you know, early on, it was like, you know, when you're starting your practice, you would take anybody and everybody and you'd make exceptions. It ain't worth it. You know, they're the clients that we really, really like. And there's some clients that can be a bit more pains in the asses. And you know what, if, if that's the way it's going to be, it doesn't need to be that way. You're not helping them and they're not helping you. So I think, you know, just just be cognizant of, of, of valuing your time and the, the kinds of, of clients that you're going to be taking on, you know, make sure that there's a, there's a fit. We, we really go through that, 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 that fit process up front pretty quickly. And if there's a fit, then we define what those guidelines are going to be in the process. And if we can all agree to that, then, then it's going to be a good relationship because 
first and foremost, we have to have fun. You know, we, we have to make sure that these are nice people. We don't want to work with people that are going to be grumpy and, and difficult. So I think you have a right to say no. And, uh, and then just, you know, don't, don't, don't take on things that you don't know what you're getting yourself into. And, and this is a, this is an area where there's lots of minefields. And if you don't do the things properly, you're going to, you're going to hurt yourself, hurt your firm and certainly hurt your client. And, and we just don't want to do that. That's a great piece of advice. So Jerry, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, either Adam, maybe I ask you a quick question. Maybe they have a client situation that they're dealing with right now. Maybe they need some advice or maybe they just want to learn a little bit more about your writing, your books. How would they do that? What's the best way to reach you right now? So they can send me an email. So it's uh, Terry, T-E-R-R-Y at Cardinal Point Wealth, C-A-R-D-I-A-N-A-L pointwealth.com or our website's www.cardinalpointwealth.com. So they can go there and send me an email and uh, be happy to, to get back. And if it makes sense to arrange a phone call to talk about these issues, be happy to do that as well. Wonderful. So Terry, thanks very much for coming on the show. And I'm uh, really pleased that you're kind enough to spend an hour of, of your time to talking about those uh, issues and cross-border stuff. I mean, there's a lot of things that advisors, I think, uh, don't know about. And I think you provided a lot of value to all the listeners. So thank you for doing that. You're welcome, pa- finally, Pavel. So <laughs> congratulations on things for you. I, I things are exciting for what you're doing as well and i just want to congratulate you there as well so good job thanks very much we'll continue the journey together okay thanks a lot that's it for this episode if you enjoyed it i would really appreciate if you left us a great review in itunes because that helps us get discovered and if you want to get in touch with us please email podcast at snapprojections.com thanks and i'll talk to you next time